Hey everyone, welcome to the Grace Capital City podcast. We're a local church in the city of Washington, D.C., and our vision is to see God's kingdom come through worship, family, and justice. If you're in the area or you want to find out more about our church, just go to gracecapitalcity.com and we pray that you are encouraged and blessed by this week's message. Uh, good evening, everybody. Hey, I think you get extra treasures in heaven when you show up to church and there's a big NFL game going on. So well done. And then half of you are like, there's a big game going on? What? Half the church leaves. Uh, <laughs> it's not that big. Um, so well done. Way to make it. If I haven't met you, my name's Chris. Serve as the lead pastor. And I'm excited. I finally get to teach in our So Our Hearts Will Burn series. Uh, Pastor Olu and Pastor Holly have done an amazing job leading us in these first two Sundays as we're journeying through the Gospel of Luke and Jesus' journey um, to ultimately the resurrection and ascension. And tonight we're going to be in Luke chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. I want to read the first three verses, 1 through 3, and then just keep your Bible open because we will come back to it in a little bit. But Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1, says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia and Traconidus and Licinius and tetrarch of Abilene, you're welcome, uh, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. And he went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. So tonight we're going to talk about John the Baptist. And I'm excited about this for a couple of reasons. First of all, I realized that this is the first time I've preached a message on John the Baptist. I've been preaching for a while now. And uh, so I was excited to get the chance to dive into this. Uh, I'm also excited because I think John the Baptist is one of the most intriguing characters in the Bible. Um, I don't know what comes to mind when you think of John the Baptist, but probably it's somewhere along the lines of a wild man in the desert, um, a particular taste for locusts sweetened with honey, Uh, fashion sense of camel's hair. Maybe it is something along the lines of like like one of the street preachers you might have encountered before. Has anyone come out of the metro sometimes? (laughs) And like you have this this good amount of street preachers in DC seem to gather around metro stops. And at one level, I'm like, I'm like, man, just, I just, kudos on your courage, like way to go. On the other hand, I'm like, the microphone is so loud. I cannot even understand. It's just, it's like, and I'm like, like, even if I wanted to repent right now, I don't have a clue what you're saying. So if you, if you know a street preacher or you, maybe you are a street preacher, just dial it back. Just, just some practical advice, like take the 10 to a seven or an eight. I think you, I think you have more, more fruit in your ministry. Um, So I think when we think of John the Baptist, these are some of the things that come to mind. And it's really easy for us to pigeonhole John as this 
crazy guy coming out of the desert and we miss the, the prophetic framework into which John's life and ministry is placed, right? That actually his role was essential. It was critical in what was God was doing on the earth and that this wasn't just some random crazy guy yelling at people, that John the Baptist was part of God's essential plan uh, from the beginning of time in the coming of the kingdom of God. And we, we get a sense that Luke is, is highlighting this. I don't know if you, you picked it up in the first three verses, but there, there is a preciseness to Luke's account. And that actually carries through the whole gospel. It, back in chapter one, Luke says, I wanted to, I wanted to create a, a detail or write an orderly account is his exact words, right? And you get the sense this is an orderly account of John's life, right? So he, he places John's life into a historical framework, right? He says, he says John's ministry begins the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. That's, that's really important. Straight away we know. Okay, placed in history, 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. There's a new emperor in Rome. When Jesus was born, it was Augustus Caesar. But historians know that the 15th year of, of Tiberius Caesar's reign is somewhere around 28, 29 AD. So he is in the historical narrative. And Luke also places John's life and ministry with a geographical framework as well, so we can get a sense of where he was. It talks about John um, ministering in the Judean desert. Now, I, I wanna show you a picture of where that is, the Judean desert, so you can see the Dead Sea. So just to the west of the Dead Sea is the Judean wilderness or the Judean desert. Now, uh, Pastor Olu and I had the opportunity, the privilege to be in that area uh, back in April when we were in Israel and Palestine. And we got to spend which, a night, which one of the most intriguing nights of my life with a, a group, a community of Bedouin shepherds in the desert. And it was fascinating. It was an absolutely eye-opening experience. The Bedouin shepherds have lived in that region for generations. There are nomadic people shepherding. But I wanna show you guys a couple of videos and pictures of that time. Uh, maybe roll the video first because I think I'm taking that you can see Olu in the back there. He's hanging on. I like this one. He just every now and then, he's like, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. But the, the aridness of that region is so stark. And so we were just flying through this desert on these like land rovers, you know, hanging on for dear life. Um, go to the next one. That's what happens when you've got a group of pastors hoping that someone knows how to fix one of these Land Rovers, like that, that look of shock and confusion. Uh, go to the next one. This one I think is interesting. So you can see the Dead Sea, and you've got one of the Bedouin shepherds with his like three-year-old son perched on the edge. And I was watching them, and I'm like, I have to take a picture and send it to Jessica because the thought of me and Josiah on the edge of that, like there was a whole lot of toppling down that mountain we would have been doing, but they had very, very good balance apparently. And then the last one, this was in, the, in one of the houses that we shared a meal with the, with the Bedouin people. And you can see the cat, you see the tail of the cat kind of in the foreground of the picture. So the whole room was full of cats. They were just crawling everywhere. And one of them asked, we said, why do you have so many cats? And they said, well, the cats keep away the snakes and scorpions. I'm like, okay, bring on. <laughs> bring on the cats. <laughs> Very grateful for the cats. 
So, so that is kind of a geographical framework, right? And, and this matters because we get this sense that Luke wants to ground John's ministry in real and tangible history, okay? That John was an actual man who lived and he ministered. He wasn't just some crazy guy yelling at you at the metro, right? This guy had an essential role. He was included in this story because his role and purpose matters in what God was doing overall. Okay, so we get this framework, this orderly account that Luke is inviting us into. Um, we also get a sense from John's cousin, Jesus, about who John was. Jesus says some really dramatic things about John. Put on Matthew 11 there. Matthew 11, this is what Jesus says about John the Baptist. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. So this is it's a big statement, right? I mean, he's bragging on his cousin here. He's saying John is a, is a big deal. It's a painting a picture of the, the role and the mission that John the Baptist had. And two things that, that stand out to me from what Jesus says about John here. The first one, he says, he says that John was the greatest of those born of women. The greatest of those born of women. Now, this is not Jesus setting up like, a, like a, a layered hierarchy, okay? That's not the point of what he's trying to do. He's not saying that John is greater than me. He's not saying that um, you're all terrible and John is greater. What, what he's trying to do is, is emphasize the very significant role, again, that John's life and ministry is playing, and especially in the prophetic trajectory of the Bible. See, John was not just a prophet. John was prophesied about, Right? If you go back and read Isaiah and Malachi, it was prophesied that before the messianic fulfillment, there would be a forerunner. There would be a preparatory ministry. That is John the Baptist. So he is, he is a prophet. He's a prophetic voice himself. Um, he's also the prophetic voice that breaks the silence. And if you're familiar with the story moving from the Old Testament into the New, you know that there's a period somewhere around 430 years of silence, and that voice is broken in the ministry of John the Baptist. All of a sudden, that preparatory voice that was prophesied about a thousand years earlier is actually beginning to speak, right? So this is, this is a great man, a great ministry that Jesus is wanting to highlight. But I think the most important thing that Jesus is pointing at here in John's greatness and wanting us to see is in the next thing he says, and that is, that the advancement of the kingdom of God accelerates with John the Baptist. What God is doing ultimately on the earth is establishing a kingdom. Okay? We talk about this all the time. It's why our vision statement is kingdom come. From the story of Eden right through to the book of Revelation, especially Revelation 21 where we have the imagery of the new heavens and the new earth, God is establishing a new rule, a new reign, a new way, a new government. And in the ministry of John the Baptist, Jesus points to it and says, there is an advancement here. 
He calls it a forceful advancement. Now, that, that doesn't mean it was a violent advancement. That just means it came against opposition and yet it still moved forward, right? He says there was a forceful advancement. There was an acceleration in what God was already doing begins to take steam in the ministry of John the Baptist and ultimately in Jesus, the Son of God, is coming into fulfillment when Jesus says in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, he says, right, the kingdom of heaven is at hand now in the person of Jesus. And so this is, this is really important we see. I'm, I'm wanting us to really focus in on how important John the Baptist's role is. This acceleration of God's purposes is happening in his ministry. It's not periphery, not just a wild man. He's not a warm-up act. I don't know if you've ever thought of that. Like John's the warm-up act, right? You ever been to a, anyone go to Wizards games here, Washington Wizards games? Is that just me? There's about, <laughs> David, there's about four of us. That's about right. That's what it feels like in the stadium some nights. Uh, the wizards are awful. <laughs> We've always been mediocre, but we need a lot of prayer and fasting because we are just terrible right now. Um, but I, I like to go to at least a couple of seasons. And um, sometimes you get there early over at Capital One Arena. And um, you get there early enough that you kind of look around and you're like, is anyone coming? It's, it's, it's reminds me of four o'clock here at church most Sundays. <laughs> Anyone coming to church tonight? It's just, just me. Okay, great. Um, and then by 4.15, here we are, we've, we made it. Um, but that, that's even true of Capital One Arena. And I always feel bad. You sit down, game's still 25 minutes away, and the, the stadium's like 5% full or something. Like, and, and then they bring out the hype guy. <laughs> you're like, man, that is a role I do not want to have. <laughs> And he's trying to hype up this like empty stadium. They get out the t-shirt cannons. He's like, everybody get up and dance. So like, Who's excited to see the wizards? And there's like three people like, yeah. <laughs> And I'm sitting and I'm like, I could do without this. Like, this is not adding anything to my experience of going to, I, I appreciate the efforts. I really do. But I could really do without it. And I think, I think sometimes we see uh, Jesus is like, sorry, John is like Jesus' pregame hype guy. Like, he's just the voice, like, we're getting ready for the big act. And it's true. I mean, John's always pointing away from himself, but that doesn't make his role any less critical or any less important, right? He's performing a critical role. There's, it was essential in God's plan, again, prophesied that there would be a period of prophetic preparation before the Messiah would come, okay? And what John is doing, and this is where I think it really starts to, to hit our hearts, is he is preparing the hearts of the people to encounter the kingdom of heaven in a tangible way, to receive the fullness of what God is doing. So have, have a look here at verse 7, because as, as John starts to minister, you start to see this theme of how he's ministering. He's, he's, he's preparing the hearts. This kingdom is coming and you need to be ready for it, right? So have a look, verse seven. It says, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, Ouch. who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you 
that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So straight away, John, he's calling out the religious elite, right? He's, he's very specifically going after the, the Jewish religious authorities, people who had rested on their Jewish exceptionalism and people who had lived lives in a sense of like, well, it, it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter how my heart is. It doesn't matter how I treat my brother or my sister or my neighbor. Like I am Abraham's descendant, so I'm good. And John comes along and he's like, nah, that's not going to cut it. That's not going to cut it. This is not just a Jewish family that God is creating. This is an every tribe, tongue, and nation family that God is creating. And the identifier for whether you are a child of God is not whether you can trace your descendancy to Abraham. It's whether you or not you call Jesus as Lord, right? And so he's, he's, he's calling them out. He's saying, he's saying God can raise up daughters and sons from every tribe. God's raising them up. He is challenging their Jewish exceptionalism because he's saying, hey, this is not going to be in line with this coming kingdom that is going to be arriving in Jesus. Keep going. Verse 10. What should we do then? The crowd asked. And John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. And then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So he's encountering these different groups of people. And, and I would summarize uh, what he's doing here to prepare their hearts for the kingdom in just the single word, repent. He's calling these people to repentance. Now, I don't know what uh, comes to mind when you think of the word repentance. It's a bit of a loaded word in Christian circles. If you were raised in the church, sometimes we, we simply associate repentance with sin, sometimes with shame. But the, the Greek definition, the real definition of repentance comes from the word metanoia. And it literally means to change your mind. Or renew your mind is another way you could say it. Metanoia, because the same root word is like, like metamorphosis, I guess, or metamorphize, is that a word? Like change your whole thinking. And so if, if you insert that idea of repentance of what Jesus, sorry, what John is doing in preparing for Jesus is he is, he is challenging people to change how they think. So he's saying, he's saying extortion has no place in this new kingdom. Change your mind, right? Greed has no place in this new kingdom that Jesus is establishing. You need to change your mind. This is a kingdom of compassion and grace and mercy and righteousness, right? This is, this is a new way, a new rule that Jesus is about to bring. And you need a whole new mindset if you're going to receive the kingdom that he's bringing. So he's, he's speaking to individual situations, but it's all part of the preparatory ministry that John was doing. Keep going. Verse 15. <clears throat> The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. 
And John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is, this is the other thing that John was doing that was so important in the preparation period is John was baptizing people. Now, baptism up until that point in the, in, in the Jewish faith in the Jewish community was what we call proselyte baptism. And proselyte baptism was a Jewish person baptizing a Gentile who wanted to convert to Judaism. And they would baptize them because the Gentile was seen as unclean and uh, particularly to enter into any kind of temple rituals or any temple uh, sacrifices. And so that was what baptism was, right? The Jewish people was like, yeah, I'll baptize the Gentile, they're unclean, and then they can enter in at some level, right? Proselyte baptism was the common form of baptism in John's day. All of a sudden, after 400 years of silence, this guy shows up out of the wilderness in very much reminding people of Elijah, right? That same kind of prophetic power and prophetic energy And he starts saying, hey, you need to be baptized, but not just you Gentiles, you all need to be baptized. And not just baptized so you can be clean to come into the temple, but baptized for remission of sin. Right? This is a whole new mindset of what baptism is. Ultimately, John is pointing towards the new covenant that's going to arrive in in Jesus, right? He's giving this, this signpost, but it's part of the preparation, right? Come and be baptized. Come and enter into what is going to be this sacrament. And it's in line with everything John is doing. This is what I'm trying to get us to understand, to see in John's ministry the absolute intentionality, the challenges, the rebukes, the, the baptism, right? All of it is pointing to the reality that a new king has arrived and he is bringing with him a new kingdom. And he wants the people to be ready. It's like they're waiting. Jesus hasn't yet begun his ministry. They're waiting. They know, and they've been waiting for such a long time. The Messiah is here and I want you to be ready. And you need a new way of thinking. You need a new mindset. You need to be baptized. You need to be ready for what is about to come. And so John, far from being just a a crazy guy coming out of the wilderness, right? He is the forerunner. He's he's, he's the preparer of the way for what would ultimately come in Jesus, challenging people to be ready. Um, I, I was thinking about the season that Jessica and I kind of lived through when between the time of when we had said yes to moving to DC to plant this church and when we'd actually left. It was was actually a full year between those two points. And I'm I'm like not an especially impulsive guy. Like I've had some people like my wife and Matt Reynolds and others say like I'm actually like reasonably calculated, maybe a little slow sometimes. Um, but once I make a decision, then it's like, okay, this is, this is what we're doing. And so the, the season of, of discernment was pretty lengthy in like getting ready to come here. Like a lot of prayer, a lot of community nights, a lot of visits to DC and just like trying to understand. 
But once we'd made that decision, like, yes, we'd given God our yes, we're going to do this, there was still a full 12 months before we were leaving, and there were some really radical adjustments we needed to make in our thinking, in our posture. I was thinking about how we needed to adjust our whole perspective of what church was going to be like. And we'd been part of Grace Midtown in Atlanta. I was pastoring there. It's a beautiful, pretty large, healthy church, tons of people around. And we were come, We didn't know, like, are people going to show up to this thing? Like, it's going to be in our living room? Like, what's that going to be like? We just had to change our minds to be ready for what Jesus wanted to do. Even, even changing our minds on very practical things, like our finances, like we were going out of a season where I'd had a job all of a sudden into like a support raising kind of role where we were like trying to figure out how the church would survive. You know, this is a whole mindset, our community. We were leaving behind a whole lot of community and praying, right, are people gonna come with us? Are we gonna meet new people in DC? What's this gonna be like? But there was a, a, a preparation that the spirit wanted to do in that season that allowed us to be ready for what God would ultimately do, right? And that's where I think the alignment is with what John is doing, the preparation season for what God ultimately wanted to do in the ministry of Jesus. Have a look back at verse four with me. Skip back. Because what I love in this text is that Luke he doesn't just tell us how the people needed to be prepared for when Jesus would arrive. He also gives a vision of what would happen when Jesus arrived, when the kingdom of God was established. And he quotes here, if you look at verse four through six, he quotes the prophet Isaiah. A prophecy given nearly a thousand years earlier. Do you think the Jewish people thought this prophecy would take nearly a thousand years to fulfill. I, I get a word, and if it hasn't happened in two weeks, I'm getting antsy. I'm, I'm like, Anya, what's wrong? Is that my lack of faith? A thousand years. Even thinking David's song, his goodness carries each generation. It's a generational word. And yet, a thousand years later, John the Baptist speaks the same prophetic word that Isaiah the prophet had said, and he's like, now it's coming. Get ready. Here it is. Here it is. He says, a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, and every mountain and hill made low. And the crooked roads shall become straight and the rough ways smooth and all mankind will see God's salvation. This is, this is the kingdom come vision. This is, this is the vision of what is going to begin to happen and ultimately be fulfilled as the kingdom of heaven accelerates and begins to come more fully on the earth. And and, and in this prophecy, there's some really powerful things that John's trying to prepare their hearts for, right? He says two things that stand out to me. First, he says, he says there are valleys that will be filled in. There's going to be valleys that will be filled in. Think about that personally for a minute, right? Think about that promise that there are going to be valleys filled in, right? He's saying that those places 
of brokenness, those places of woundedness, those places of deficit, he is promising that in the fullness of God's promises, those valleys will be made whole. The places we, we, we never could fill ourselves. I was even thinking about just that, that dissatisfaction that we all feel where we're like, Am I, is, I'm just doing my job, I'm going through my life. And you're like, is this really all I was made for? And the reality is the reason you feel that way is because you weren't just made for this, right? We were created for more. And, and in this, this valley, right? John's saying that's gonna be filled in. There's gonna be a satisfaction that doesn't come from just ticking the next box from, oh, I finally got married or I had a kid or I got a promotion or I traveled. If I just hit every continent, then the valley will be filled in of my wandering soul. And Isaiah and John the Baptist is saying, no, no, only Jesus can do that. (laughs) You will wander your whole life and you will be dissatisfied your whole life. But in God's new kingdom, that valley will finally be filled. Valleys will be filled. But not just personally, like like globally and structurally and systemically. I mean, one of the great promises of the Bible from beginning to end is that there will be a lifting up of the downtrodden. That those who have experienced oppression or slavery or brokenness in some way, right? That, that, that there's going to be a rightness, a wholeness, a healing, right? The valley is going to be filled in. And so he's, he's, he's pointing to that prophetic reality. He's saying there are going to be valleys filled in in your heart. And there are going to be valleys filled in in our world, in our society, in our culture. Every valley will be filled in. And he also says... He says, there are going to be mountains that will be made low. There will be mountains that will be made low. I think most of you would agree with me when I say that globally, structurally, systemically, we live in a world where there are systems that are incompatible with the kingdom of heaven. They make no sense in God's new reality. They stand opposed to God's wisdom and God's purposes and God's plan. And you better believe that as God's kingdoms come, there there are going to be some mountains torn down. (laughs) Exploitation, greed, slavery, immorality, whatever, violence, right? All these things, these are mountains that in God's new reality make no sense, will be torn down in the name of Jesus, right? Mountains will be made low. And also, it is, it's so much easier to look out there than it is to look in here sometimes. Because <laughs> I was sitting with this passage all week. I've known I was preaching on it for a few months and just sitting in it. And the reality is I've, I've got some mountains in my own heart and my own mind too. I've got some things that are incompatible with God's new kingdom. I think if we were really honest, there's some, there's some self-righteousness, pride, bitterness, some mountains in our own heart. And God's saying it's not just the mountains out there, it's the mountains in here too. 
And the kingdom of heaven will hold a mirror up to you. And fortunately, by the grace of Jesus, you will see ultimately the righteousness of God. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, right? That we have become his righteousness. But yet in that process, we also see in God's grace, we see our own lack. We see our own brokenness. Finally, we come face to face with the reality that we can't do it on our own. And that we are prone to wander, prone to sin, prone to exploit, prone to gossip, prone to violence, fill in the blank, whatever it is. Friends, there is a mountain in our soul that the Holy Spirit wants to do a sanctifying work on. And so the question then that we need to wrestle with, and and David, maybe you can come up here and we can just have a moment to allow the Spirit to to speak. The, The question that all of us need to wrestle with, if this is what God is doing, right? He's filling in valleys. He's, he's tearing down mountains. And John was preparing our hearts for it, right? Are we a people who are able to receive the kingdom of God? Are we a people who are able to, to, to put ourselves, where we, we, we find ourselves desperate enough to say, I'm tired of self-help. I'm tired of just trying on my own strength. I, I, I'm, I'm tired of medicating and dopamine fixes and whatever it is, right? I need you to fill in this valley, God. Do we get to that place where we finally say, God, I, I see the deficit and I've tried everything else and nothing has fixed my soul part of the posture of receiving fully the grace and the goodness of God is saying, God, I need you to fill this valley. It's not filling on its own. And in the same spirit, you know, part of receiving a life submitted to the Lordship of Jesus is being humble enough to say, God, will you break down the mountains that are in my heart? Will you break, will you show me the places that are incongruent with what you're doing? If if there's a day coming in in Revelation 21 where the old order of things will have passed away and there's a new way and it's justice and righteousness and peace, then I gotta be honest and I gotta recognize there's some things in my heart that don't line up right now. There's some ways I feel about my brother or my sister. There's some actions, some thoughts. There's some things that I need to repent. I need to metanoia of. I need to change my thinking of. Do do you realize that as important as John's ministry was, even if he hadn't fulfilled it, Jesus still would have come. And I think that matters because it matters because God is going to have his, his weight, right? His purposes are going to come to pass with or without you. The question is, do you want to live into your sonship? Do you want to live into your daughtership? Do you want to live into your inheritance that has been promised and enter into what John the Baptist was challenging, a season of preparation? This whole life, in a way, is a time of preparation. We're ultimately in glory. And we never fully arrive, but... We follow Jesus on the journey. Not only is God going to win, He's already won. The question is, do you want to be part of it? Do you want to follow Him? Do you want to let your life be sanctified? It takes humility. 
takes grace, it takes a willingness to be intentional, to look at our world with a lens of love and grace and truth, but also to look at ourselves with that same lens, grace and love and truth. Say, where do I need to repent? And so just for a couple of minutes, I wanna create a little bit of space before we finish up and just give us some time to do that business with the Lord, right? Just give us some space to come before God and recognize for all the brokenness out there, God's healing wants to start here. And the inner work that He's doing in you can ultimately flood into everything He wants to do through you. And so let's ask the Holy Spirit two things. And if you, have, if you want to write down, if you have a journal or a phone, you can write these down because sometimes the Holy Spirit might say something that you need to remember. But we're just, we're just going personally right now. And the first question I would ask is, Holy Spirit, where is there a valley that needs to be filled in my heart? Where is there something I've been trying to fill in my own strength? dissatisfaction like I just don't I want more I want more that's not a bad thing but when we're trying to medicate it ourselves it becomes almost idolatry Holy Spirit would you speak to us about any valleys that we've been trying to shovel dirt into when you want to come and just flatten the whole thing just make the whole in your presence. I want to be I want to be healed. I want to be whole. God, if there's something I'm doing to resist the filling work that you're trying to lead me and show me that. Show me that. Make it clear. Secondly, let's ask the Lord. Holy Spirit, are there any mountains in my heart that you want to tear down?
stubbornness can be one. Just like, I'm not, I'm not going to do it just because someone told me to do it. Like that, that self-righteous stubbornness. God, I, I feel like that's something you're working on my heart. constant process, Lord, that we are learning how to die to the flesh and be resurrected in the Spirit. But Lord, may we never give up on that journey. May you lead us a step further in grace and mercy and kindness and righteousness again. May we be a people ready to receive the fullness of the new heavens, the new healing work that you are doing in and through us. Lift up the valleys, bring down the mountains. to this week's message I pray that you know the presence of the Spirit the love of the Father and the goodness of Jesus wherever you find yourself God bless